Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Sir Peter Wanless is the CEO of NSPCC, one of the largest and longest standing charities in the UK. The NSPCC has spent over 130 years delivering on their mission to prevent cruelty to children. Peter has recently celebrated 10 years as their CEO, where he has helped modernise the charity to meet the ever-changing, complex world of child abuse and neglect. The NSPCC broke down their mission to three important impact goals. One, everyone plays their part to prevent child abuse. Two, every child is safe online. And three, children feel safe, listened to and are supported. In this episode, Peter talks about the different types of child abuse, how this has evolved over the last decade, the NSPCC's work, the challenges running a charity this size, his highlights from the last decade and much more. But before the episode starts, I'd urge anyone who is able to, to click on the link in the show notes or go to www.nspcc.org.uk forward slash donate and give what they can. Hey, Peter, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. Good, good. So um, obviously you're the CEO of NSPCC and you've just celebrated 10 years in that position. So first of all, massive congratulations. Um, And secondly, how have you celebrated that milestone? I've actually, I'm just back from three weeks off. I've never had three weeks off in a single chunk as far back as I can remember and certainly never at a time other than the depths of winter or the height of summer. So um, that's probably the main way that I have celebrated. That There was a work reason for it as well. Not, not that I'm planning to go anywhere, but my chair was and has been really interested in challenging me to run the organization um, without being present and to test some of the kind of systems and processes that we have in place if Peter isn't on hand to offer a thought or a direction about uh, this or that. So it was a bit of a kind of reward and indulgence for me and also uh, a bit of continuity and business planning for the NSPCC as well. And thankfully, I seem to have returned to a healthy and mostly happy organization. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a single point of failure in the business, uh, but it sounds like it was a much needed, much needed break. Um, so look, today we're going to talk about um, the topics of child abuse, child safety, and obviously the great work that the NSPCC do. Um, first, I was I was hoping to learn a bit more about, you know, who Peter Wanless is actually. And, and I wonder if you could share like a brief overview of, of like your background, some career highlights, and I guess most importantly, like what really motivates you? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the NSPCC says childhood shapes who we become. Abuse never should. Um, my mum and dad were uh, both teachers. My dad was a music teacher, um, both really keen on cricket. Um, and when I was growing up, I either wanted to open the batting for England or be a rock star, um, <laughs> things which I'd sort of picked up from my parents 
neither of which I managed to achieve. Um, my mum was also, she was a, a Methodist and she had a very, very strong sense of moral purpose. And um, my parents were in no means sort of stifling, but there were very clear sort of expectations as to how I should conduct myself. And they were pretty sort of um, hands off. I mean, when I started work, they pretty much just took all the stuff in the house that belonged to me and gave and, and gave it to me and said, off you go, which is not a kind of parenting style that I would um, do with my son. We've probably gone too far in the, in the other direction. So um, I, I think as a, as a character, you know, I'm formed by that sense of moral purpose, a love of cricket, a love of music, and then just a real interest in, politics. So at university, I did a course called International History um, and Politics. And uh, I've spent most of my 20s working quite closely with government ministers as a as a private secretary. And I've worked with a kind of succession of uh, household names in conservative and labour side. So that's the other kind of element um, of me. I'm really kind of deeply interested um, and, and fascinated by decision making and, and and how things work, but over time have got I don't know if I've got disillusioned with politics and parliament, but I think you know legislation and regulation are pretty blunt instruments compared with community engagement, behaviour change, getting alongside, working with and through people to achieve positive change is what really fascinates me. So while I haven't lost touch with um, the importance of um, political influence and that sort of game, working somewhere at the NSPCC gives you an amazing opportunity to um, engage with the realities of people's lives and work on some, uh, you know, fascinating things which can make um the country a much better place for many more children. Definitely. And I, I think that context, it's a no-brainer how you've ended up in, in the position that you are then. Well, when you look back, it makes sense. But when, you, when you're living it, <laughs> yeah. not, not quite the same. I didn't have a big life plan, which was automatically going to lead me here. So there probably is a bit of um, retrofitting the story to where I've ended up. <laughs> Could be, but I think that's the best way. It's like that windy road that you can't always plan or foresee coming, but then you end up where you should be and it all fits into place. So, um, yeah. So, look, before we talk about the NSPCC specifically, I just wanted to chat to you like more broadly about child abuse and child safety. And I, I'm going to preempt, I have quite a lot of questions. Like, for me, this is a really important topic and I, and I don't know enough, like, enough about it. Um, so, first, first, I thought we could start with something simple, which would be like just defining like what is child abuse, and secondly, like what are the different types of child abuse that exist. Okay, so um, let's let's pretend we're in the NSPCC's Speak Out, Stay Safe assembly for primary school children, yep. and what we help um, uh, children understand is that um, abuse and neglect is never their fault, and there are. Uh, the main types of abuse are physical abuse, uh, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, you know, the absence of care and, and love, um, and um, bullying we talk about as a, uh, in, in primary schools as well. So, that, so those are the main 
types of uh, abuse and, and neglect. And by the, the age of 18, uh, in the UK, over half a million children have experienced abuse of one kind or another, which is the equivalent of seven in every classroom. So this is, um, one might argue, of um, pandemic um, proportions. Far too many young people experience um, abuse, uh, sometimes serious life-changing um, uh, abuse. And so the other thing which abuses and can be, can be, is not just something unacceptable that happens to a child in the moment, but something which has life-defining consequences, uh, trauma and implications, which then uh, rest with that person and define their life um, very much further uh, into the future. So we need to prevent as much of that abuse as possible from happening in the first place we need to protect uh, children and young people who have experienced abuse um, proportionally so that they can um, recover. And we need to create the conditions uh, in society and the context in which children are heard, respected and, uh, and understood. And, and through doing those three things, the NSPCC will uh, achieve its charitable purpose of preventing cruelty to children. Thank you. And it's horrible hearing you just talk through it as a as a father of two. Like I just couldn't imagine any anything worse. Um, what I was going to ask was next was like if you could share some um, insights or context into like how child abuse has evolved over the last like decade or two. Because I assume it looks very different today than it was say twenty years ago with just say the internet and how much that's exploded. Can you share a little bit about how yeah how things have changed over the last ten twenty years? Yeah, I think I think that probably is the single. Uh, biggest change, the online world where young people spend increasing proportions of their time because there's lots of exciting services and benefits which they can enjoy there is an environment um, which is unregulated and doesn't have the fundamentals of child protection designed into it in the way we would routinely expect uh, toys or playgrounds to have regard to the safety and well-being of children in their in their design. So that's a so that is a big change. I think that as a society we have got um, much better at seeing uh, sexual abuse and emotional abuse for what they are, and being more willing to uh, call that out. Uh, and so, uh, some of the kind of sense that, oh, this is terrible, things are getting worse is actually a consequence of us being more tuned to, um, uh, unacceptable, um, exploitation, uh, of, uh, uh, of young people. And then there are some, you know, there's some positives as well. I think it's socially far less acceptable to knock your kids about a bit than it was. 10, uh, 15 years ago, the NSPCC has long campaigned that um, children should have the same protection under the law as adults from physical abuse. This sometimes gets trivialized in the press as a, a smacking ban. But essentially, um, what we're saying, you know, if you do damage to a young body, which is more fragile in yeah, many yeah. respects, 
um, than uh, an adult, then that young body, that person should have the same protection under the law. And the polling we do on that now um, has a significant majority of the country you know, in favour of that protection. So um, we are, we're making progress uh, recognising and in some respects responding and creating the conditions um, uh, to support children, but still um, a lot, a lot, a lot goes on. Um, I think the uh, everyone's invited movement was a very interesting and powerful expression of uh, young people themselves spotting unacceptable behaviours between other young people. So that's a whole dimension of abuse which people don't always think about. There's a there's this kind of default sense that it's a adult doing something to a child, but some of the uh, abuse which young people face is um, perpetrated by other young people. So th- there's a, there's a few of the themes that are of um, uh, particular interest and topicality at the moment. And um, I guess when I was doing my research and, and looking at this and, and looking at kind of like child safety, I was kind of roughly dividing um, what's being done into like two camps, which is like, I think you used the term prevention earlier. And I think you used the other term as yeah. protection. I was using like intervention. Could you could you kind of drill down into those two in a bit more detail? So like what falls under like acts of prevention? What's like some of the most effective things that have been done today versus like what we're doing from an intervention perspective that's, that's very effective as well? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the hardest things in, in this job at the NSPCC is to work out where we can make our most distinct contribution. People think of us as a large charity, but we're tiny in relation to the scale of the, of the problem, which we've just been, uh, describing. So, um, for us, I think we have a particular opportunity to, engage with many, many more people beyond the expert um, social workers and therapists to create practical ways in which all of us can play a part in keeping children safe. So one example of a preventative action that we have promoted is the uh, is the underwear rule. It's our pants campaign. So many uh, parents of a certain age will be familiar with the Pantasaurus, who is a character who has a song which has, which is one of these ones that you can't get out of your head. And he helps, um, adults talk to children about, um, how to stay safe from sexual abuse, that the parts of their body covered by, uh, underwear belongs to, to them and them alone. And if they have a worry about that, then talk to a, uh, to a, to a trusted adult. So we have an ambition to make the kind of simple awareness of risk there as easy to talk about in the family environment as the green cross code is teaching kids how to, uh, to cross the road. So that would be one example of a, uh, a preventative intervention. There's some amazing, uh, services on the, uh, NSPCC. Uh, website and that feature in some of the um, services which we deliver around uh, attachment theory to help babies bond well with parents. Um, there are there's a kind of resilience and brain development science 
that is is strongly showing how there are practical steps which many of us can take in those early years to create stronger bonds of protection and 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 understanding um so then at the other end of the spectrum we have got children who have suffered experienced desperate difficult abuse of 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 one kind or another who can benefit from uh, therapeutic interventions which help them come to terms with what's happened um, to them and help them see and appreciate that what they have experienced is not their fault and to chart a way that helps them overcome uh, that trauma as best as possible to um recover that kind of personal value and and sense of of worth so um uh, we're active uh, in 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 that space as well we also particularly look in in the context of those interventions at how they can be organized to be much more child friendly and sympathetic to the context in which the uh, the child is and um, there's quite a long way to to go there many um, services, you know, however well-intentioned, are designed um, to the convenience of the the adults or the particular discipline, as opposed to starting with the context of the child and helping them tell their story um, once, rather than having to deliver it to many services in yeah. sequence. Whether that is the doctor, the social worker, the court, you know, every time they have to do that, they're re-traumatizing revisiting the experience yeah, yeah. over a, over a long period and there are some there's some really interesting work going on including at at this a, a one-stop shop for children who've experienced sexual abuse called the lighthouse in the nsbcc's building in north london for example which is a transformative way of trying to configure services to be able to intervene earlier more effectively and more efficiently for children and and earlier you you talked about like the rights of children versus like the rights of adults um to understand the i guess like legislative sorry legislation and, and like the landscape there what are the key bits of law in terms of like how are children protected like what rights do they have versus like where it should or needs to be uh well the fundamental rights of the child are encapsulated in the united nations convention on the rights of the child, which is a really strong foundation for public policy making in Scotland and Wales. It's not the case in England, um, which makes, uh, I, I think, influencing and informing uh, what happens for children in England more difficult than would otherwise be the case. You know, if if, if I had one or two wishes uh i'd like the all the governments in the uk to incorporate the united nations convention on the rights of the child and for there to be a cabinet minister uh who represented and thought about all the issues which um uh, affect children's lives um I, I, it's more difficult than it needs to be i think um Quite a lot of the influencing we're trying to do uh, 
in England because of the fragmentation of responsibilities across Department for Education, Home Office, um, De- Department for, for Health, Ministry of Justice. All these um, organisations are delivering services and kind of having a view of children, but they don't join up in a really in in the sort of integrated fashion or the way they would do if there was a minister who was there sort of administering and having regard to uh, the rights of the child in 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 the way they they might makes total sense and i'm sure you've asked this question i don't know if you've ever got an answer i mean why haven't england adopted the same un conventions as the other the other countries in the uk i I, I think that um, the the rights based, and I, now I take myself back to my time when I was a civil servant at the, the Department for Education, and, and I think that rights based uh, arguments um, can become arguments as with, with, with people saying you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other, and the whole thing becomes a regulatory legal. Um, discussion which misses the humanity and the reality of uh, young lives and so i did say earlier you know i got a bit fed up with legislation and regulation and become more interested in cultural change and behavioral change and so there is another way in which we can get to what we desire um, for children which is about um really uh understanding and appreciating um rights and responsibilities and and behaviours. And there is a bit of a risk that if you overly concentrate on the the rights, you miss the obligations and responsibilities and opportunities for families and individuals to play a part in keeping their their children safe. So I think probably too often this ends up in a in a, a rather um boring and, and unhelpful debate about is it the government's responsibility or is it the family's responsibility to keep children safe in 1884 when the nspcc was founded the government had no interest or locus in keeping children safe at all um, animals had more rights than children and um, my ultimate predecessor the reverend benjamin war Know, set up the NSPCC to do something about that. And by 1889, we had the first Children's Act. And from that time on, there's been a legitimate and important uh, government responsibility alongside the really important obligations and responsibilities on um, parents and carers uh, to keep children safe. That concentrates my mind quite often because I think, well, he did that in five years and I've been here for <laughs> 10 years. You know? I don't know. I, I, we're going to get onto this, but some of the stuff that's happened whilst, whilst you've been in tenure. Um, but I think there's plenty of impact that you, you've brought. Um, and I'm going to stop because I, I, in terms of ask questions, like general topic questions around child safety and, and child abuse, because I could go on all day. But um, thank you for, for explaining all those things. Um, and I think most people know the NSPCC. And obviously, you've touched on some of the work that you did there and some of those answers. But can you just recap and explain like what the NSPCC is and, and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. So our mission is to prevent cruelty to children. That's been the case ever since 1884. Um, we have three um, impact goals in our current 10-year strategy, which we are determined and confident we can make a palpable difference to. So the first one is everyone can play a part in keeping children safe. And I've touched a bit on the 
the underwear rule and um uh there are simple hints and tips and um uh that 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 many of us as citizens can uh uh do to keep children safer than otherwise be the case there are many things which you know children law enforcement um uh, sorry teachers law enforcement and so on can can do so that's that's one big one second one is um that the online world should be as safe as the offline world and we've already uh, touched on that um designing the fundamentals of child protection into the regulatory regime that applies to um uh social media companies is vitally important and a necessary uh, first step um but we also need to create awareness and understanding in families about what they can do to uh be be safe within that uh, environment and we have a particular interest in amplifying the voices and perspectives and experiences of children online in real time so uh, it's all very well creating a set of theoretical rules and the companies telling us things are safer than they were before or better than they otherwise might be but if we're hearing um, on a sort of daily basis that things are preventable things are happening to children here or there, then getting their voices as consumers of the services into that dialogue is, is vitally important. And we're currently campaigning for a, an amendment to the online safety bill to have an explicit uh, capacity to advocate for children within the regulatory regime, as we have in other regulatory regimes to represent consumer voices. And then the third impact is that all children should be able to speak out and be heard and understood if they have a worry or a concern. And that's where um, our childline service is vitally important and is here 24-7 for any young person with a, with a worry or concern. We have an NSPCC helpline, which is available for any adult who has a worry or a concern uh, about a child. We're in um, the overwhelming majority of primary schools having those entry-level conversations about what is abuse and neglect and what to do if you have a worry or concern the notion of a trusted adult and if as a young person you're not sure who the trusted adult is then you've got childline so those those are our three big uh areas of focus at the moment there could be very many more and one of the most challenging parts of this job is, you know, making strategic choices and, and, and focusing us, bringing us back all the time to being a child protection charity focused on preventing cruelty to children because it's a big brand and lots of people are really interested in what the NSPCC might want to say and think about this, that or the other aspect of, of children's lives. And I'm really determined to ensure that we don't spread ourselves too thinly um, and we don't find ourselves you know popping up in the papers children's charity says things should be better for children uh, of course they should but it doesn't actually move the debate on and make progress towards achieving the impact that we want to achieve I mean, based on the challenges you shared earlier in the conversation, I think those three pillars or three focus areas seem to hit on the three most impactful areas you could do to shift the needle in the right direction. Um, and funny enough, you were actually, uh, the NSPCC were in uh, my kids' primary school a couple of weeks back because <laughs> um, they all came home with the coloured in like pants. Oh, and the pants as well. Yeah, good. So 
Um, you shared a little bit about, you know, the creation of the NSPCC and, and, and how that came about. I was interested to see like your kind of part of the journey. So, you know, how did you become the current CEO? Were you approached? Did you apply for the job? And, and I guess ultimately, like what appealed to you about the opportunity here? Yeah. So I was previously chief executive of what was then called the Big Lottery Fund and is now the National Lottery Communities Fund. So um, I was helping fund uh, hundreds of extraordinary organizations to do amazing things. And that was a lovely job, which I've probably done for uh, forever. Um, but I was uh, I was approached when the NSPCC were looking for a new chief executive. And prior to being at the lottery, I'd been um, in the Department for Education. So children's issues were the issues which um, interested and mattered to me most. And the weakness of the lottery job was that you were helping other people do amazing things and kind of one step removed from actually um, doing them. In the conversations with the headhunters, it also struck me that the sort of leader that the NSPCC was looking for at that particular moment in time played to some of the particular skills that I was um, confident I could make a contribution on. So it was it was a grueling um, uh, recruitment process, but actually by the end of it, um, I felt absolutely sure that. Um, what they were getting was me and what they wanted was me. And the very last question they asked me in the final, final interview was, do you really want this job? <laughs> and, and I said, God, yes, I really do. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that was it. And there's something about going into an organization where you have the, um, the confidence to be authentic. You know, there's been no kind of pretending to be, um, someone that, that that I wasn't, and that got me through the first um, 12, 12 to eighteen months, which then creates a sort of platform for um, you know opportunities and uh, and 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 growth and and all the rest of it. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this. The good news is you can go and visit www.jobsforgood.io where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Definitely. And you, you touched on like you were the kind of person they were looking for. Like what, what kind of CEO or leader were they after? And, and like, I guess linked to that, what were you walking into? Like what were some of the challenges that, if, that the, the organization was facing 10 years ago that you could help them with? Yeah. Yeah. So that my, my, the been, my predecessor had done a really um, significant job in focusing the NSPCC on uh, understanding that it was a small cog in a much bigger wheel and that to achieve effective impact, uh, we had to be better than dispensing random acts of kindness to the children who happened to be touched by our services without really understanding the positive impact that they were making. 
So a really um, transformative analysis and strategy had had been launched onto a slightly unexpected organization. So um, there was a need to translate the quality of that thinking into um, the the skills and the reality of people who were working in and around and, and supporting the charity and also to help connect the national significance. I think that strategy was really helping the NSBCC develop with the local relevance of the NSBCC to, to all communities. So you can have a really brilliantly designed high fidelity intervention that is transforming the outcomes for particular children in a particular bit of Glasgow. But if that doesn't have some sort of relevance to Mrs. Miggins making jars of chutney for the fate in uh, East Devon, that doesn't really work either. So dialing up the local relevance and building the school service to be a national service and to create some of these opportunities for more people to see that the NSPCC is present and available in their community and relative to their lives needed to be matched to the really important change which he'd helped bring in around we are a learning organization and we need to um, influence and amplify and, and that learning bit and influence and amplify was what I think some of the best lottery uh, awards were were doing so I could bring some thinking from my role as an intelligent funder of impactful uh, short-term interventions into the um, lifeblood of an iconic brand and an organization. The other thing was that that um, the NSPCC had had to turn in on itself for a while in order to work through this quite um, significant change. And so there was an opportunity uh, and a desire from the trustees to kind of get back out there and have the visibility of the charity and the association of the NSPCC with the issue much more prominent in many people's minds. So I arrived just shortly after the whole Jimmy Savile thing. And, you know, people were talking then about, well, this is a moment for the NSPCC to capture public attention on the issue, but we've only got six months. Um, what, what will happen after that? So one of the kind of achievements, I think, of my time has been to continually be thinking about um, where are the moments and opportunities for us to retain and maintain the importance of, uh, uh, of our issue in, 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 in many people's lives. And it does feel as important a challenge now as it did uh as it did 10 years ago and uh, yeah i mean you talked about the huge importance of like visibility and awareness from a, a perspective of like solving these problems and um accelerating um the positive impact you can have but also it, that's also going to have a huge knock-on and uh, effect on funding as well which you're going to be heavily reliant to provide and do all these great things which um i could talk to you about in a in a question or two um one last thing which um just come back to you said about we were talking about kind of your impact earlier and I just wondered like if last you know fast forward to now when you look back over the last 10 years like what, what are some of the most high impact successful or just you know programs or services you've set up or provided that you're most proud of 
Uh, well, definitely the Speak Out, Stay Safe service in primary schools. So when I arrived, I was quite sceptical about this idea that we could get into primary schools with a service because when I'd been at the Department for Education and the Director of Secondary Education, my goodness, there are so many organizations. Everyone has something which they want all schools schools to be doing. Um, and I'd, you know, been engaged with lots of teachers and head teachers and appreciate there's only so many hours in the day and the the work pressures and the time pressures on them are immense. And yet we have created something which is a a must have now. I mean, it's, it's available in, uh, over 90% of primary schools and there's no obligation for the schools to, to take that service, but it, it's pretty much available everywhere now. And we are developing it not simply to be a kind of moment in time, but to have resources and opportunities associated with it, which increasingly the teachers in the school can take on and continue the conversation in the mainstream uh, curriculum, uh, where, by the way, during this period, um, uh, relationships education in primary schools and relationships and sex education in secondary schools has become mandatory. So there's greater opportunity to do that. So that's definitely one. Um, the other would be um, the making the case for and then getting um, legislation around online safety going through parliament and and that wasn't uh altogether straightforward i mean we 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 create we helped against the initial suggestion that it wasn't required change the law so that the grooming of children through uh tech means uh was made illegal and as a consequence of doing that um the police then started spotting and uh arresting um adults who were guilty uh, of this crime and then through freedom of information requests we could then illustrate the scale of these crimes and where they were on which particular platforms and how they were occurring and then that in turn demonstrated that were there were a whole load of preventable crimes here that with some adjustments to the design of the services on which the crimes were being committed um, could be prevented. So kind of seeing the long game and building the the stages in that space has been really important as opposed to just um, shouting about regulate the internet. You know, that, that on its own wasn't going to be successful with the Conservative government. Yeah, I, I mean, both incredible. I, th- I think the second one, um, the long-lasting positive change that will come from that, because uh, I imagine once you started to see how much was going online, it was probably staggering and like, eye-opening to the the extent of the problem. But like you say, I think there's a lot of not easy fixes, but simple changes that can be made that just makes it much harder for this stuff to happen, which will have a huge cumulative in, uh, like yeah. impact. So um, I can I can see where you pick those two out. Um Next, Peter, I want to chat a bit just about kind of the operational side of the NSPCC because it, I, I know you said it's like tiny compared to the problem, but it's still a huge charitable organisation to run. Um, in terms of like number of people, both employees and volunteers, can you give an idea of like just the, the scale of the operation? Yeah, so we've probably got about seventeen or 1,800 employees uh, across the UK and Jersey. And we've got, depending on your definition, um, 
6,000 or so volunteers. So we have uh, um, over a 1,000 volunteers in Childline. Uh, we have hundreds of volunteers who are the front line of the school service that I've described. And then we have thousands of volunteers who are um, uh, fundraisers. So the, 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 the historical kind of backbone of the NSPCC has been the branch and district network um, of um, uh, people who are generating funds and visibility for the charity in communities across the country. And in terms of kind of operational costs, what, what that equates to, because um, I had one of the founders from the Felix Project on before and, and much smaller operation, but that was still well into the millions of like annual running costs that they had just to, yeah. to like maintain each year. How, yeah, how, yeah. How much are we looking at on a yearly basis? So in a typical um, year, we are uh, raising and spending about 115 to 120 million pounds about 80 percent of that goes on uh, services and support directly for children and the charitable purpose about 15 percent of that goes on generating income you know to raise the next pound um, and then about uh, four and a half to five percent and that's down from eight and a half to nine percent when I started goes on the kind of governance and uh, running costs uh, of the of the charity. It's quite hard to make. I, I mean, I think that's I'm pretty good, and I'm happy to uh, defend that in terms of the the percentages. So, but some of those are can be mis misleading. I mean, it's really important that you invest in effective governance and management of a complicated uh, organization. So just because that number has gone from eight and a half to four and a half doesn't mean I think it should be two. Um, and uh, that will change over time. And similarly, because we are overwhelmingly funded from voluntary donations, nearly 90% of our money comes from voluntary donations one way or another, we need to spend more on generating income than some other charities who might um, get large proportions of their money from you know, big contracts. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you, you know, you touched on it there, like the, the, the governance costs are super important because you need, the, the more efficient you are, the more you're making every pound go further kind of thing. And as you go along, you'd hope the efficiencies keep increasing so you can spend slightly less, but also as the company gets, the organization gets bigger each year, then it's, it's a constant balance. So it's hard to get that figure down to like one or 2%. Yeah. And there are some particular challenges, you know, in the whole kind of tech area, you can, you can scrimp and save and short term keep going on uh, platforms that are the cheapest in the short term. But uh, if you're not careful, you're not then investing in being an organization that's fit for the future. So, you know, there's some big challenges like everyone that we're, you know, grappling with in that space. Definitely. And, and on on that point of like ninety percent of um, the money coming is from from voluntary donations, I think it's probably a good point for me to just urge listeners to take action if they can and donate whatever they're they're able to um, by heading to www.nspcc.org.uk and clicking the green donate button in the top corner. Um, you can do one off donation. I think you can do monthly donations, which is what we do at Jobs for Good. 
Um, but every little, every little helps. And, um, I wouldn't actually, Peter, if you'd be able to share like how much difference even a small donation can make, like 10, 20, you know, 30, 50 pounds. But what, what does that allow the NSPCC to do? Huge. Well, f- firstly, firstly, I would say that regular donations are amazing and important. So in, in, in regular donations enable us to plan out into the future and to deliver services with some, uh, with some confidence. Um, uh, you know, what a small amount of money, you know, four pounds enables us to respond to someone on childline. Um, so that's, that, that's probably an easy and, and, and simple, uh, example, uh, of, of it costs us 35,000 pound a day to run childline. Um, so, um, Within that, you know, you can break it down into the training of the volunteers, or the answering of the calls, or the, uh, or the contacts. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So every little bit makes makes a huge difference. Um, one thing I was I was really um, uh, inspired by, and I know it's a frustration that you quite hear related to charities, is like how money is spent, what's going on, how much actually goes through to do certain certain things, and. Um, the level of transparency on the on the website is probably the, the most I've seen from any organisation. Um, you know, money raised, how it's spent, exec pay, uh, pay gaps. It, is is that a legal requirement, or is is that more about the values and ethos of the organisation and just wants to be super clear about how the money's spent? Yeah, a, a bit of both. There, there are increasing expectations on organisations to declare in their accounts um, the fundamentals of what the money is spent on the diff- and the difference that it makes. But also, I think you know donors increasingly expect to see that sort of information. So we probably, you know, we 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 choose to err on the side of uh, being open rather than not uh, about about these things um, because. Uh, I think, yeah, that, that, that's the way in which you give people confidence that the money's making a difference. You know, one of the dilemmas that I really face with the NSPCC is that it is such a, um, established and iconic and authoritative brand that's been here for a while that people imagine, well, they'll be okay. That's all right. We take some comfort from the fact that as a nation, we have this conscience for children over here. Um, we'll give our money to something more immediate and more urgent, um, over there. But there is real jeopardy to what we do because of the way in which we are funded. And, um, I, I, I don't like to, scream and shout and create a sense of you know emergency because that does give the impression that you're not being very well uh run there's a reason why the nspcc has lasted over time in a way that some of the more um i don't know if hysterical is the right word but in your face charities like you know kids company and beat bullying and one or two of these things fashionable for a while have crashed and burned so um, yeah, I'm always interested in ideas and advice on how to strike the right um, balance between that authority and that, that gives us the in to influence at the highest levels because people know and trust us to um, believe in what we're talking about with the sense that in order to do that, 
we need to keep generating uh, the funds necessary to uh, to keep going. As soon as you look like a, a money bag that's generating generating cash for its own sense, you've got a problem. But the truth is, our operating model um, is utterly dependent on income generation. Yeah, and like you said, I, I, I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form. But I think being open, honest, and, and clear on like this is how much it costs to do all these things on a yearly basis. This is how much you're raising, and, and there's actually not much there. Like wiggle room, I think is probably the best way to go about it. Um, then people can't really make assumptions or guess that oh, you know, you're fine or um, whatever that might be. Um, final question about the NSPCC was just like looking forward. So I guess like what's some of the things you're working on? What what are some of the things you're most excited about that we'll see coming out in the next like year or two? Yeah. Well, uh, so th- because there's been such excitement and success around getting into and engaged with so many primary schools, a lot of people have asked us and we've thought, well, what's the equivalent in secondaries? So it's definitely not an assembly in a workshop, um, but uh, there are some really big and important issues around the quality of relationships and sex education and the notion of uh, consent and respectful, healthy relationships between teenagers. And so we have a program called Talk Relationships, which we have been developing with young people, with teachers, um, that is starting to go into more um, secondary schools now um, directly with us, but also building capacity and confidence in the secondary schools themselves to teach this really important aspect of life skills uh, very well. So that for me is an exciting and important area of development that will that will make a big difference. Um, the other one I think we're, we've touched on a little bit already is the injecting the voices and perspectives of children and young people themselves into the the national discourse about what's going on um, online. And we have an ambition for the NSPCC, uh, I would say over the next three to five years to be seen not just as um, experts in child protection, but experts in mobilizing and channeling the real voices of uh, children and young people to um, those with power and influence to hear and understand um, what their services look like to them. I mean, the, 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 the high point, many of the high point moments that I've had in the last few years have been in conversations with young people themselves who are just stuffed full with, um, you know, bright ideas and uh, innovations and spot the kind of opportunities to make a difference on the things which matter to them, which aren't always the things which um, uh, adults imagine um, they might be. So that issue about, you know, the, the health of relationships and the quality of relationships and sex education in secondary schools, that comes straight out of what many young people will tell you is uh, uh, an issue or a challenge, which is not being addressed in many places as effectively as it might be at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's such an important distinction. I think that you need to really uh, listen to the uh, people you're trying to help. Um, so that bit of a bit of a weird parallel but you know have a lot of startup founders on here that are building products and the issue is when you don't listen to your users and you don't hear exactly what their pain points are how they need things what they're trying to do 
you build something completely different. It's the same concept here. It's like you need to listen to these young people. What are the big problems? What's on their mind? How do they want to be spoken to? How can you deliver training or education in, in the most impactful way and in a voice and language that, that means something to them, which is, which is the real tricky stuff to get right. So, Yes, perfect parallel, I think. <laughs> okay i was wondering as i started going down that tangent whether yeah. it would be okay yeah. or not yeah really recognize it yeah um probably only got got chance for a few last questions um so i want to ask a couple of questions just just personally about you peter and some of your journey i just wondered um with the work that you do and and i guess just some of the th- things you see in here on a daily basis like I, I that stuff i don't think i could really get out of my head i mean how do you manage to kind of like detach yourself from that when you do go home and you you know you're with your family you're trying to you're trying to chill out but you've had a day where you've seen or heard certain things yeah um well uh firstly although um the issues that we're dealing with are among the very darkest and difficult things that can happen to children. And there are tragedies and near misses, which we deal with a lot. Everything that we're doing is bringing hope and sunshine to that. So there is, there are so many conversations taking place in Childline and through our services every day that are making things better for children that would otherwise be the case that you just have to remind yourself um, uh, of those. Um, the other thing is, you know, I am right up here somewhere and not on the front line in quite the same way experiencing that as some of my staff. And I am in immense awe of their skills and their resilience and so we we have an opportunity we have an obligation and a responsibility to our staff and our volunteers to create the space for them to have really excellent supervision and and support to deal with the impact of that uh, uh trauma um equally there are some of them who are better skilled than me at being in that space for sure yeah, there's definitely like a, a talent there, being able to deal with those situations, but not allow it to to, to affect you too personally. Um, and then I, I guess kind of last thing is we've touched on a load of uh, different topics here. And I, I think it, it would strike a chord with anyone that's listening. Um, and I think I saw there's like a, a lot of open positions on the NSPCC website. So I guess for anyone interested in working for the organization, do you have any advice on like what you look for in people or how people can really shine in like interview processes with the, with the organization? This is a really topical question because we have just launched a new um, shop window for the NSPCC on our vacancies uh, website area of the NSPCC uh, online. So I would love people to go and, uh, and take a look at that and watch the films that are on there because you will get a really strong sense in the words of people who are working with us at the moment, in every one of our functions, what it is that they derive from the work they do um, with us. So uh, I, I think we, we look for people with energy, passion, heart, um, commitment um, uh, to the cause, um, whatever function they are. Uh, looking to to work in but as you've referenced you know we're a we're quite a complicated uh organization and we employ 
um, uh, digital experts, lawyers, accountants. You know, there are, there are many disciplines which you can apply to the overall charitable purpose that we're seeking to achieve. But if you watch what our people are saying um, on the website about what it is they think they're getting from working with us, I, I can't put it better than them. Yeah, no, fair enough. And um, I think something you touched there really resonates with me and my personal mission, which is like educating that anyone, no matter who you are, what your skill set is, um, what industry you work in, like you can always work for a company that's doing good in the world. And like you said, there's such a variety of positions open on the careers page that like people just need to go and check that out. Um, so I guess wrapping things up, Peter, like it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Like I cannot thank you enough. Um, for anyone that wants to find out more, obviously they need to visit the website, which will be in the, the show notes. Um, where are, where's the NSPCC most active on like social media? If people want to follow you on socials. Um, so there's, uh, NSPCC accounts on, um, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, you can follow Childline on TikTok. Um, you can follow the NSPCC or me on LinkedIn. I think I'm much more interesting than the NSPCC itself, um, on, on, on LinkedIn. And I have quite a following for my shirts, never mind my <laughs> insights into child protection, but that's a whole other, whole other story. So, you know, where, where you'd expect to find the NSPCC and or Childline, um, you'll find us. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for taking some time to chat with me. It's been been an absolute privilege and um, I wish you all the best. Thanks very much, Craig. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.